QUT acknowledges the Turrbal and Yugara as the First Nations owners of the lands where QUT now stands. We pay respects to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of teaching, research and learning. QUT acknowledges the important role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people play within the QUT community. And here at How To Academia, we also acknowledge that these lands have never been ceded. Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. In a stunning turn of events, our usual host, Jodie Deeth, is today's guest. Jodie is an associate professor in the School of Justice at QUT. Her research focuses on child sexual abuse perpetrated in institutional settings, especially by the Roman Catholic Church. Our interviewer this week is Adele Webb, who you might recognise from her time as a guest on this podcast recently. On this episode, Adele and Jodie cover several huge topics, including Jodie's research, reconciling personal religion with institutional failings, and how to deal with the rage of working in justice. Obviously, this episode comes with a content warning. Jodie discusses her work researching child sexual abuse and also discloses that she herself is a survivor. If that's something that you don't need to hear about today, maybe jump to another episode. I also want to mention that congratulations are in order. In the few weeks between recording and uploading this episode, Jodie was promoted to associate professor and we couldn't be more proud. She spent her career speaking truth to power and we're so happy to celebrate this win with her. Without any further ado, Jodie Deeth. Welcome to How to Academia. Who the hell are you? I am uh, Dr. Death, Dr. Jodie Death. I am a post-Christian feminist lesbian in the School of Justice who teaches into the criminology space. How long have you been in the school? So I've been in the school for 12 years now and I came here from child protection. So I started my university career when I was about 21 and I was really interested in sexual offending and so I went to Charles Sturt University and stayed for a decade to do a PhD and I think I always wanted to be in academia but I went and worked in child protection for nearly four years before I came to QUT. So can you tell us a bit about those early times? Because being interested in sexual offences and research around that is not really probably everyone's pathway. How did you come at a young age to be interested in that? So I guess, like I grew up in a time when, if you haven't listened to the Kelly Richards podcast, you should go back and listen to the Kelly Richards podcast, when... I guess there were some huge cases that happened in the 90s, in the 80s and 90s when I was a teenager around kind of high-profile victimisation, which was interesting because I think I grew up in a very normal, middle-class, white family in a smaller kind of country town. I happened to, in the great lottery of life, live next door to a sex offender, so that introduced some really interesting kind of experiences in my life. I am a survivor of child sexual assault and I think that it kind of rolled over into my just wanting to know what we can do about sexual offending, what we can do to stop re-offending, what we can do to better work with people on both sides as victims and perpetrators to deal with what is a massive community problem and even if if you look at the ANROS reports that come out just last week by their mid-twenties over 50% of young women in the lifetime spectrum have experienced sexual violence so that's a lot of young women in particular out there and we're not good at counting the male victims but we know we know that they're out there we know that they do exist not to the same extent and so I just think 
this is an issue that has such profound effect on people's lives and something we need to get better at talking about and I wanted to understand that more. I'm probably curious by nature and I wanted to know how we can do it better. So sorry to jump right into the kind of the grit of it but you could have decided that as a survivor this was just far too triggering for you and you could have left the advocacy in this space to people who weren't personally triggered by it but you did the opposite so was that a conscious decision or did you always just think I this is you know because this is my experience I'm gonna work in this I want to work in this space that is a really excellent question there's several things I'm going to say about that let me just ease onto my podium here Uh, (laughs) I'm up on my soapbox Uh, one I think that overwhelmingly the people that work in the sexual violence space in some way impacted by sexual violence in fact I think it's an it's an industry that's primarily serviced by women and I think that's a problem to start with but I also think you are hard pressed to find a woman on this planet who has not been sexually harassed and in fact I encourage you that if you think that there are women in your life who have not been sexually harassed have some real conversations with them Mm. because sexual harassment continues to be just something that is the daily for women and so when we escalate that up, up against the paradigm of offending Again, you're drawing from a pool where over 50% of women in their 20s, as we just said, have experienced sexual assault by the time. And we're not talking about, like, you know, catcalling on the street. We're talking about serious, often contact offences, sexual assault. So one, hard-pressed in that pool to find someone who isn't. Uh, Two, to be brutally honest with myself and you, dear listener, I... feel like I was raised a Baptist. I was raised a good Baptist girl. And from my earliest days, I remember having this drive for social justice. And my, um, you know, my year two primary school teacher still tells my mother, bless him, that the thing he remembers about me was about my passion for social justice at that time. So I've always been good on a rant, it appears. (laughs) But I think that that faith at the time drove me to know that we should be doing things to make a difference and we should be living by the values that say we care about people and we want to make a difference in people's lives. It just turns out that I'm more the Jesus that overturns tables in the temple than the meek, mild, demure Christian woman it wasn't something that stuck so I there's lots of things I want to ask and I want to go back to what you actually studied when you went to uni the first time but I'm really interested in these kind of like social justice yearnings from this Baptist upbringing but you described yourself as post-Christian and then the Jesus that you just described is the Jesus that you would have learned about no so how do you negotiate that now and how much does that still inform your kind of desire for justice, this kind of Christian framework? So when I say I'm post-Christian, I take that from this amazing feminist theorist, Mary Daly, who, as all of the amazing feminist theories, is a complex character, but she identifies it post-Christian and I think that's a really beautiful, perfect kind of framework for me because my... Christian upbringing and my Christian faith shaped so much of what I care about. And it shaped my language around compassion and justice and mercy and grace and all of those things that are kind of key to the Christian narrative. And honestly, when I mean, when I finished high school, I did not do great in high school because I was not doing great in life. When I finished high school, I ran away to Bible college, which was this, okay, I joined a cult. <laughs> When I was 18, I joined a cult. And I... But really, it, like, it saved my life. And you can't, like, set aside that kind of profound thing that nurtured you. But I have irreconcilable difference with the Christian faith that 
I think I, d- I identify as post-Christian because I think I, I figured out I'd either have to spend my fringes, life on the fringes of an organisation and the, the organised Christian church, I think as in all organised religion, is deeply problematic as my research will come to show and I'm sure we'll talk about that but I feel like these things were formational to me but they're it's no longer the ethos that drives me and I no longer feel an obligation to the Christian faith as such yeah so but but when you were at Bible college did you imagine yourself working like as a missionary for the rest of your life or what did you imagine then I think when I was at Bible college I was just trying to survive and I think trying to really figure out where I fit and I didn't I didn't know where I fit I knew that I was not doing the best that I could do and you know for a while I considered becoming like joining the Baptist church and becoming a pastor good god they would have hated me (laughs) so deeply but I think I ultimately decided that I wanted to tangibly do something that was different and so I thought well where's the gap in what we know and the gap was sex offenders so I went to university to figure out how to work with sex offenders and better understand how do we turn people's lives around because the Christian gospel is all about turning people's lives around and I wanted to take that and shape it into something that that made a difference and if we could stop reoffending, then we could prevent further victimization and that would be a great thing to do and the the reality is that it's only now that the kind of sex offender work is starting to come back into my life a bit but my focus has always been on victimology and always been working with victims even when I've tried to get out of it like I feel like that's a vocational thing or if we go back to the Christian language a calling thing to be working with victims Mm -hmm. but it was just that drive to want to do something to make a difference and fix an issue. So what did you actually study though at uni? I mean like how do you, what do you choose? Yeah so my options were pretty limited because I didn't do great at high school and you know all of of my high school was like she's very clever but doesn't apply herself. (laughs) But then honestly when I came to do a PhD there was a couple of my teachers that when my mother told them went she's smart enough for that. It's like, like that narrative kind of came through strong then. So I had, you know, I had limited options, but at that point, the internet had only just become a thing. It was the mid, late 90s. And um, it was the hard copy book. So I went to the news agency and I bought the hard copy book and I flicked through and I found criminology at Bathurst. I knew I didn't want to go to a city because I'm not a city girl. Brisbane is probably the biggest city I could ever possibly tolerate living in. And Bathurst was a great option. I have family there. My dad is originally from there, so it's kind of like my people's country. And so I started university and I just stayed because by the time the PhD rolled around, I was doing much, much better. I kind of had found my groove and was offered this opportunity. And I thought such a small percentage of the world gets this opportunity I should take advantage of it I mean I when I started university I didn't know what a PhD was I had no idea like I just I went to university because I wanted to know something rather than I wanted to be something I think and was the so the pathway from undergraduate to PhD was quite straight then you went kind of straight the way through what with an honours or something and then (laughs) probably the straightest thing about me (laughs) Um, yeah, so I... Says, said by you, not me. <laughs> I, I did my undergrad degree. I did well in my undergrad degree and then I did honours and then the opportunity to do a PhD came up. So, yeah, I literally spent a decade at university. So tell us a bit about your PhD research. So my PhD research, um, my honours research, let's start there, was I looked at service providers to Indigenous male survivors of sexual violence and what their perspectives were on what Indigenous men needed, wanted, because I was interested in the intersection of culture and sexual violence and the intersection of gender. 
And interestingly, the only person as a white woman that told me that I wasn't welcome in that space, I talked to a lot of Indigenous service providers, the only person that told me I wasn't welcome was a white male solicitor, said, pretty much bugger off, this is men's business. Everyone else was beautiful and accommodating. And so then, that was 2002, and in 2002, the Boston scandal in the Catholic Church broke, which was kind of this key global event where these beautiful journalists at the Boston Globe figured out that there was a bunch of perpetrators functioning in the Boston Diocese and the church was just moving them around and kind of lifted the lid on this. So being a good Christian girl, I thought, wow, this is the issue of the Christian age for us. What can I do to work in this space in a positive way? And I became interested in finding the stories of churches that were responding well to sexual assault and churches that were doing something positive in the space. And what I found was that churches, churches talked a good talk and had a whole bunch of narratives to varying degrees around forgiveness. Everyone was having a policy on the table at that point because in 1995 the Catholic Church first launched towards healing insurance agencies were saying if you don't have a policy in how to respond we're not going to insure you so they had a policy but they didn't really want to talk about it and so they'd kind of give me this fairly surface level acknowledgement and then never invite me back for anything kind of deeper they were going yep we've covered that off that's not going to happen in my church and there was these narratives around forgiveness and forgiveness being central to the Christian gospel and saying survivors need to forgive because it's in the survivor's best interests. And some of them said that forgiveness is about wiping the slate clean. Some of them said forgiveness doesn't replace accountability. But ultimately there was this really disillusioning and unsatisfying kind of approach and I began to read a lot of feminist theology to try and understand where all of this was fitting in and see the way that feminist theologians and I kind of like you know my my concept of what God inverted commas rabbit here people should be and what God was in the Christian faith diversified so much that they became like I couldn't reconcile them and I could not see a mainstream church where both the Greek and the Hebrew words for Holy Spirit are feminine pronouns and I could not conceive of myself ever sitting in a church where they referred to the Holy Spirit as she. And I just went, I don't belong here. That, and I fell in love with a woman, which (laughs) further complicated matters and kind of made me go, okay, this is not the fit for me. This is not where I want to be for ever. But it made an interesting kind of, like there's a chapter in my thesis, in my PhD thesis, that is all just about unpacking this reflexive journey of entering my PhD as a good Christian woman, trying desperately to hold on to something and exiting a post-Christian feminist and how that impacted, how that those journeys impact each other of doing a PhD and figuring out the self in that. Yeah, that reflexive work is so interesting and it's so great that the PhD could accommodate it, you know, that you can actually include that in the work. But you, I mean, you were involved in the church from the time you were very small. How do you think you reconciled that stuff previous to that? I mean, the the kind of male-dominated language, the male-dominated structures, organisations and so on because it seems like you had this catharsis you had this kind of moment of reckoning when you started reading feminist theory but what was happening in your processes and rational before that a lot of fights i'm going to say <laughs> a lot of i mean and I, I was fairly fortunate in that i grew up in the church in a time where women in leadership were starting to be seen more and starting to be more present and so i had some beautiful female pastors in my life and when I was a teenager I had a series of excellent I guess leaders that were very 
this is a space that women should occupy. But you can't get away from those voices, from those verses that are like a woman should be subject to a man. And I never saw a female senior pastor. And, you know, I know that that's changed, but I also know that churches really struggle with that. And it's an incredibly divisive issue. And it just, it never sat with me. And it seemed to me that it didn't matter what I achieved as a woman in the church, I was too angry about sexual violence. I was too angry about victimization. I was too angry about social justice issues to fit with the what was expected of a woman. And I just was never going to be submissive enough. <laughs> so that I was never going to be submissive enough to make it in the church. And I don't like I didn't I didn't want to live on the fringes. Mm. I didn't I didn't want to exist where I would always be agitating. And I saw a bunch of beautiful role models like my sister who, you know, also came to a post kind of Christian perspective, although I don't think she'd frame it like that. And she still really cared about social justice and she still really cared about, you know, doing excellent things for her staff and creating collegial environments. And she still really cared about making a difference in the world. I mean, she owns a cafe and she was embodying these things, I thought. Surely I can embody these things outside of, like, I don't have to lose the values of who I am in losing my faith. I can take my values with me into the world. And sometimes I rock at that and sometimes I suck at that. And I think I've become much more comfortable with the human condition in that. So the PhD process was actually a very personal journey for you then, it sounds like. Well, beginning with your honours research and then moving through because as you moved through the research you also moved through these very very important cathartic moments in your own journey and then where did that leave you when you finished the PhD and what did you do next? So I kind of ran out of time and scholarship and I submitted just after I started working for child protection and I went to child protection because you know, I care about child abuse, right? I care about working in that space. And this is the frontline organisation that deals with that. And I wanted to build that frontline experience before I went to academia. And so I worked in child protection in the Hunter region for those close to four years and had some of the biggest life lessons that you could have. But I'm a, I am a big believer that we can't separate our humanity from our work and so just like I figured out I couldn't separate my humanity from my PhD work there's no point I guess in being stuck in navel gazing where you spiral around and around and around but there is a point in thinking critically about who I am and who do I bring to this and how might my engagement with whatever work I'm doing be either reflective of or shifting who I am Mm -hmm. and those I think are important things to consider if we're going to remain consciously ethical in our approach to doing work. So child protection, like I love the frontline work, I love going out and talking to families, I love going out and interviewing kids, I love, you know, there is something when you take a child out of an environment where they're at immediate risk of harm, if you can put aside all of the other ways the system might screw them up, In that moment, you feel like you're tangibly doing something. You feel like you're making a difference in that kid's life. If you can work with the family so that they can begin to turn things around for that kid, and the research shows that it just takes one really positive role model in that kid's life can make all the difference in dealing with trauma, like that feels really tangible. That feels as if you're actually achieving something. And people are interesting. People of all walks of life are just interesting to work with and child protection is a you know you you get people at their worst and you're like you're taking away or you're potentially taking as soon as you knock on that door they see you as coming to take their kids whether you are or you aren't Mm -hmm. and you're potentially taking away something that is meant to be the most precious thing to them and so having to work in that and find ways to working that that I think is respectful and I think is compassionate and I think 
the system doesn't allow for those things particularly well but I I just think the way that you talk to people and the way that you deal with people is much more of a reflection of who you are than who they are so if they're screaming their head off you for you how you respond to that says more about you than it does about them and their circumstances Mm -hmm. so you talk about feeling in that context as if you're doing something worthwhile did you also feel at times that it was pointless and that you were not able to help people when that was what you were there to do so I will always remember this like this little girl who I was sure was being sexually assaulted by someone in her space and I you know got the police reports and I looked at everyone in her immediate world and we couldn't figure out who might be harming this little girl and I went out to her and I often think about her because I remember I I gave her my card and I said put this somewhere safe and if you ever need help then you just call this number on here and someone will help you and I learnt lessons about how you can't always fix it and sometimes all you're doing is you're drop in the ocean sometimes all you are to that but you know that and she looked heartbroken when I told her that I couldn't come see her anymore and all of this may just be me projecting can we just say um but you can't always fix it and you have to be okay with that you have to find a way to be okay with that and say I'm just this drop in this kid's life or this person's life and that moment where you even if it's just a fleeting smile or a fleeting moment of kindness then that's just a drop and hopefully the drops will accumulate to make a difference. But if you try and fix it all, you're going to get burnout and disillusioned and heartbroken and perpetually frustrated and really angry. And all of the women that I've known who have been in child protection for 20-plus years died of breast cancer, heart disease or some other chronic illness that came up. And I think that comes from the frustration of not being able to fix it when you just desperately want to make people's lives better and you, you, it's difficult to find that balance I think so did you see that girl again no. yeah and I think like I often thought because I left child protection shortly after that and I thought if she calls and asks for me there's not going to be anyone there for her and I hope somebody has the sensitivity to go mm. what are you calling about honey or how can we help you or reaching out in some other way it's it's so interesting, and I'm going to take the liberty of doing a bit of interpretation here just for a second. Cause Do I, it. I, I love the way that, you know, that you had, even at this time, this sense of importance about not just what you were doing but who you were being. And I think we see so little of that in our world about, you know, that it's not just what you do, but it's how you do it and who you are when you're doing it, that that matters. And I'm assuming that comes from that kind of history your personal history with being compassionate and being kind and it's lovely because I think it's rare and I I think it's really important I'm going to say that I don't I've not always won at that and I feel like there's like the the temptation to be hard as a coping mechanism is so strong and the industries that justice professionals go into I understand being tough on crime not because it works but because it's a secure place to stand Mm. It's a place that says everybody else is the problem and I'm going to fix this problem. And that is a fairly... Like, that feels empowering, right? And I, and I, I feel like we don't just take that in the tough-on-crime stance. I feel like we take that on in so much of our approaches, but I, I see a change coming where the world cares more about kindness and fairness and being something different. And I think there is the death throes of a great battle of wills going on here but I hope that we get better at establishing boundaries in respectful and compassionate ways Mm. because being kind doesn't mean just letting people walk all over you there is a way to remove a child that demonstrates respect for the parent and that's a challenging spot to find for so many reasons but it is a better way of doing things ultimately and results often in less conflict 
to do it. And I think one of the biggest questions, one of the biggest tips I'm going to say in that is ask lots of questions. Like, don't try and... And I'm guilty of... Like, I'm not great at this skill, but instead of trying to convince them of your position, interrogate their position kindly and thoughtfully and with great curiosity, and you'll often have more of an opportunity to have an impact there than... Mm by just trying to preach from your soapbox. I've heard you talk previously about vicarious trauma. Can you talk to us a bit about that? I mean, is that something that happens, that you deal with now in your research? Yeah, 100%. So I think vicarious trauma is the great undersold reality of our industry. Not just academia, but all of the kind of justice professions and just in the day-to-day existence because of the amount of trauma there is in the world you will encounter difficult things and difficult things that are experienced by other people and so vicarious trauma is the notion I guess of being exposed to a trauma that isn't directly about you so it can be things like carer's trauma where you're caring for someone with PTSD it can be in the research that I do so I map pedophile networks in Christian institutions so I'm often reading transcripts, narratives, details of abuse and not just people talking about their experiences of abuse but the the stuff that I find more challenging is the inadequate responses to that and the cover-up and the that's the stuff that really I find really triggering and difficult and I think that we have to perpetually deal with vicarious trauma to different levels for different people and some days I'm better at that than others and some strategies I have are better than other strategies but I think we will all experience vicarious trauma just in life but particularly in the justice work Mm. even if it's just just policy again rabbit ears people if it's policy you have to think about the impact that this is having on people's lives and that involves a certain level of emotional engagement that makes you uncomfortable which is the realm of potential vicarious trauma. Mm. So does that include, you know, you talked about your research with pedophile rings in the Catholic Church and the ideas of institutional cover-up and negligence and more than that. Does anger come into it and how do you, is that part of vicarious trauma and how do you channel that anger then potentially to be productive and can you? Yeah, so, I mean, like I... I'm more likely probably to get angry about stuff that I research than probably incredibly sad. I've kind of reconciled on some level that this is just the sad reality, but I still get really angry and I mostly get really <laughs> I get really angry at the cover up and the way that victims were just shut down and marginalized and just just unnecessarily treated extremely poorly and unnecessarily further victimized and this is one of the reasons why it's really great to either work from home or that I have an office buddy who um works from home a lot as well because when I'm sitting here swearing swearing at my computer screen it, it doesn't really impact on anyone so yeah I still get angry and I think anger is a normal human emotion and we stop getting angry about things then that's when I probably need to reevaluate doing this work if I'm no longer emotionally impacted by it and I no longer have capacity to understand what those emotions mean in the context but I channel it a a number of ways mostly I deal with it rather than channel it I'm going to say and I deal with it by I've recently discovered slam balls where are these excellent like the old medicine ball for those of us that grew up in the 90s uh, where you raise them above your head and you throw them to the ground with all of your might and I hope you don't have one in the office do you? I don't have one in the office and I wouldn't because I'm not confident these floors would not give way but they're, I mean they're excellent uh, I used to use a boxing bag a lot uh, when I was in child protection in particular um, but I'm a huge believer that these emotions need to be channeled out from the body. And for some people, that's really calm, soothing walks in nature. Yoga or something. Yoga or mm. something. That's not my jam. My jam is throwing things at the floor. <laughs> and so that's how I work. And I do do, like, you know, I do other things. So I make sure I build into my life. Incredibly privileged to be able to go scuba diving and seek out the beautiful things 
as well so that you're not just seeing all the world through the lens of how it's horrible i don't watch tv anymore no judgment on you if you do watch tv that's fine but i can't sit down and watch like tv is just trauma to me like the whole notion of a drama is around somebody having a rubbish life you know even comedy is so often built around somebody having something rubbish happen to them and i just i can't deal with that I just get flooded. I do read fantasy novels, but even only then, I can only do it sporadically because there's only so many Killing Dragons and I play video games. Sounds like you should watch MasterChef or something like that. Oh, God, I can't stand reality TV. <laughs> because inherently Adele people annoy me. So <laughs> just, I, can't, I can't watch reality TV. We won't go there. We won't <laughs> go there. Um, so academia is really is an interesting gig, isn't it? Because you and you've come at it with all this stuff that fuels your desire and your passion and your determination, but at the same time, it's this intellectual exercise. It can be quite abstract. You have to be quite opportunistic about, you know, publishing and writing the right stuff that gets published in the right journal. Blah 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 blah. It's not always about you know what matters most in the world. How do you? balance those things like your your desire to make a difference and you're doing it through this work but also the kind of constraints or the kind of formula of the job I'm going to say badly is how I do it I think I have found something in the mapping work that you know previously my kind of research has been around talking with victim survivors and I did Australia's first study of victim survivors of institutional sexual abuse in Christian churches and published that and that was kind of along my jam of recognising that I or learning that that I want to create spaces for voices and it's not my job to amplify them it's not my job to I guess even curate them it's my job to create spaces where those voices can speak into and then I got involved with some research with the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuses and we talked to children about their perspectives of safety and I think kids are one of the most undersold resources that we have as a nation and I think we think that kids don't know and don't think about these things and we don't want to talk to kids about things that are difficult because we don't want to ruin their worlds and I'm like, the, the opposite of that is, or the flip side of not talking to them is that things happen to ruin their world and they're completely not prepared for it Mm. and if we had just had honest conversations with them in a non-scary way then we could avoid so much of the trauma that happens for children and young people and so that was some really great and in that talking to young people talking to kids about safety we went and talked to kids in resi care residential care who said pretty much good god can somebody come and talk to us about sexual violence because we are experiencing it and nobody in our world wants to talk to us about sexual violence and please, can you come and ask us about sexual violence? So we did. We went and asked young people about their experiences of sexual violence and residential care. And those kind of working with victims feels really good to me. Like That feels like it's a really good space. But the, the mapping work is it's an, it's an area where I'm really feeling it because again it's something that feels productive because I'm creating maps I'm creating a visual resource that makes sense to survivors and so when I feed back to survivors on the work that we're doing the survivors are like oh my god this is everything that we always knew was there but we've never been able to kind of put together or articulate and it becomes this incredible resource that maps and demonstrates visually survivors experience and looks like you look at it and you go this was a net and I think survivors look at it and they go there is no way I could escape this Mm. and it points to this notion of I was not at fault here because I was targeted it and you know the the way that this this represents this map represents I couldn't get away from it it was and I think that that is more empowering and that's the work that I want to do the academic stuff around publishing it I wish I could buy into the narratives of like publishing it is this great way to get this voice out there and this really important to get the knowledge out there and it is really important it also terrifies me Adele (laughs) 
Like, I cannot tell you how terrified I am of publishing anything. Like, I have this crippling fear around writing, putting anything in writing and putting it out. But you must write in the other initiatives that you just talked about. That involves writing. So is it publishing in journal form in particular that's terrifying? It's any kind of writing and... It's one of those things where I have had to learn that you just have to do it. Like, you just have to sit down, put words on the computer screen, essentially get over myself, and it has worked. Like, I have found making it work is about working with incredible people. So working with my beautiful colleague, Associate Professor Tim Moore, who's at in Melbourne and working with Kelly Richards and working with people who fill that gap of I have great ideas that I could talk until the cows come home like shove a microphone in my face and I'm off ask me to commit it to a page and I feel crippled by that thought but I have to figure out how to do it. So the terrifying bit is the consolidating your thoughts or the linear it's committing it. It's committing words to print, really. And I think a lot about what this is about. And I think it might be. It's easy for me to sit here and have a conversation with you because it's a conversation, right? If I put words in print, it's there. It's so solid. It's my voice. It's out there. And like, it's not even like, what if I'm wrong? Because I don't even think I'm wrong. I'm wrong about some things, <laughs> but these particular things, I don't think I'm wrong about. It's this intrinsic kind of imposter syndrome around why is my voice important enough to be out there you know my my voice in the spoken word is kind of transitory in the written word like in 2000 years nobody's going to be listening to this podcast right but in 2000 years somebody might stumble across an article that I've written and it's still there Adele (laughs) like and you know I'm sure they're not going to care but like it's that permanency that I think I bang up against and I really struggle with it and I have to force myself to do it in measured lots and commit words to paper and it kind of makes me a crappy academic I've got to say because it's like a fundamental job skill. Well probably makes you one with some pretty good hacks because you must have found some practical day-to-day hacks that help because you've got to you know, got to this point in your career, what sort of tips do you use? Because I'm sure you're not the only one who has this... I mean, imposter syndrome is very pervasive, isn't it? But yeah. this kind of crippling fear of writing, What? how do you get over it? Well, you don't get over it. How do you it's an ongoing, manage it? Yeah, totally. It's an ongoing struggle for me. One, you know, if you write in a 25-minute chunk, great. If you write in a five-minute chunk, great. You just have to get the words on the paper. I worry less in the first draft about whether they make sense or not. You can edit words on a paper, you can't edit a blank page. I have let go of the notion that it is... I've even let go of the notion that it's going to be be excellent. It's very crippling, that one. Yes, so crippling. I just think if it is adequate, great. If it is good, better. If it represents survivors' voices, it probably doesn't matter. Too much. And my biggest downfall is that I will leave everything to the last minute until I absolutely have to do it, or otherwise somebody's going to get very cranky at me. And that is a bad strategy. (laughs) But, and I'm working on, perpetually trying to work on writing earlier to draft multiple times. And I date drafts. So whenever I save something the last section will always be the date Mm. so that I sometimes have 15 drafts of something and again my greatest success has been working with people who kind of fill that gap like Kelly Richards is amazing she'll bang something out like I'll come up with some crazy idea and she'll bang it out on paper so find the people that you have kind of synergy with and then she'll write Mm. to me and say Deeth you've got to write this bit and I'll be like, okay, I'll write that bit in my <laughs> But head. you're not starting from scratch. But you're not starting yeah. from scratch, right? Yeah. Like you. And I think 
it is about having all of those conversations because so often I'll be sitting in a room having conversations with people and I'll say something and they'll say, oh, that's really interesting. And I'll be like, is it? <laughs> like, I thought that was just really obvious. <laughs> but often what is obvious in your head is not what is obvious in the rest of the room. And it's just like, you don't know how interesting it is until you say it out loud, mm. I think. So have those conversations, collaborate. Structure, I think, is important. So I always kind of brief out my sections, paragraph by paragraph, what I'm going to put in there. And then just, I've now just started writing the bit that seems the easiest. And then, so then you have something on the paper and you feel like you've done something. And it's like that ticking off the rewards and feeling as if you've accomplished something and you've jumped some milestones. Mm. And essentially you're just tricking your brain into doing something Mm. I think and tricking your kind of like emotional fear to at least sit down in the corner quietly and play with Lego (laughs) or something you can do that at my house if you like (laughs) (laughs) you've got plenty of that (laughs) if you need it (laughs) thanks I appreciate that there's some they are some actually really good tips you probably don't feel like it but you've develop some really good strategies it sounds like I feel like I've only just started coming into my own on that front like I feel like it's taken me a long time of messing around with it to get to that point where maybe now I look at myself and I think oh yeah maybe I can be an academic maybe I can like get that gig going after all and tick some of those boxes and do some of those things that I'm meant to do well this is going to seem a facetious question then but I was wondering Do you think that academia is the only place that you could do what you want to do in this space? I mean, it's not for everyone, is it? And you've said it's it's not not even, maybe it's not even for you because of the writing thing, although you've conquered it and you're you're doing super well. But it's not for everyone and it's not the only way. So could you imagine doing this in some other space? I feel like... I could go back to child protection quite happily. The great travesty is that I'd get paid almost half as much and have much less kind of freedom around my schedule. I feel as if I'm fortunate enough to be able to do a range of things in my life, but I believe that the thinking part of the world is really important. The work of academia and academics is incredibly important for thinking about the things that happen in people's lives and creating and recording knowledge about that. But we undersell massively those frontline workers that have frankly carried us through the pandemic, that carry us through life. And the you know, those child protection caseworkers or those police officers or those people that are out there on the front line making that difference by being that drop in someone's life I think we massively undersell them and their like this position here in academia is an extraordinarily privileged position and it's it's a position that I think we are incredibly fortunate to be in I think that the academic industry is deeply problematic and probably heading for a revolution and I think the revolution is probably needed but the the short answer is no, no, I don't think this is the only way that you can make a, a difference. I think there's a whole wide way of making a difference. And if that's your jam, your jam is you want to make a difference, find out what works for you because you will be better and do more in the place where you are passionate and then take care of yourself in that space because mm-hmm. wherever you go, the politics is going to be what kills it for you. The politics of the institution is going to be what kills it for you. So take care of yourself in that space and find your way to do that. Mm-hmm. And I don't care what it is. If you are passionate about making it work to be a difference, to do do difference in the world, then I think that's a beautiful thing. That's lovely. That's lovely. <laughs> I, I don't mean that in a, like a banal way, but that's just, yeah, I love that. That's... That's really great. Well, you've chosen academia, so is there a particular theorist or a theory or a body of work that you love or find really formative? Oh, what do I love? I remember when I first discovered John Braithwaite's Reintegrative Shaming, and it was one of the sexiest things that I've ever read. (laughs) 
and it, I just got so excited. Now, there's all sorts of critiques and problems with reintegrative shaming, I'm just going to say. But I remember discovering it as like this golden thing of, oh, this is actually about making a difference and caring about people's lives and actually recognising that people are humans and they make mistakes and can change and that, you know, punishment is not the only way. In fact, punishment is a pretty crappy way of engaging in behavioural change. So I, f I think that's been really important in my thinking through the world. I'm a total sucker for feminisms. I particularly love Judith Butler in particular. Her early work is almost incomprehensible. I'm going to say I used it in my PhD thesis and there were times when I'd read a sentence and I'd be like, oh God, I don't think I even know what those words mean independent of each other, let alone together in a sentence. <laughs> like, I don't know, I don't know it. I, f I feel like Butler has also gone through a bit of a revolution where probably I'm going to say her partner, bless her, has said to her, Judith, darling, do you think you can just talk like a human? Nobody understands Nobody you. understands <laughs> you. And if nobody understands you, your message is completely lost. Like, I know it makes sense in your head, but the translation Thank is God being for lost. The I know, right? I'm, I swear, I mean, Judith, feel free to give me a call and let me know different. But I feel like Judith Butler went through this beautiful kind of growth period where she went, okay, I need to talk to real people. But I love her ideas around the self and the way that the things that we do like gender are performative. So gender is not this absolute thing. Gender is this thing that we manifest and enact in mm. what we do. And there is this beautiful fluidity in the world that I think Butler really beautifully picks up on this idea that things change and that perspective really matters. And when you're looking at a problem, if you're looking at it from this kind of absolutist, this is the right way perspective, and I think it's given me a lot of compassion and a lot of, I guess, thoughtfulness around when I'm thinking about dealing with these priests that I think about in my work, and I look at them, at some time, most of them were 14-year-old boys mm. who ended up in seminary either because their family needed them to go there because they were too poor or someone, some male child in the family had to go or, you know, some of them were, went there because they were struggling with their sexuality mm -hmm. and... They ended up in this system that was absolutely corrupting. And then when they were in it, like, what do, you, what do you do if you're not a priest anymore? Like, you, what job do you get? I went to theology training. Who cares? That means nothing to the outside world. And you lose, you know, you're so isolated from the rest of the world, you lose all of your peer supports, all of your connections and everything that validates who you are I mean religion is and this is another thing that I get from Butler like religion is this thing that informs who we are it's this thing that you know when I identify as post-christian it's because that Christian thing still means something to me and when I decided to leave Christianity it was not just something that I believed it's something that I was and for people making decisions in the world even the really bad decisions they're making decisions based on who they know themselves to be and if they don't have access to knowing themselves to be something different or if they have to sacrifice this whole concept of who they are to be someone different then we're asking them to do something that is extraordinarily difficult and I think the thing that I love about that kind of post-structural theory is that it, enable, it, it allows for change. It allows for things to develop and to be seen from a different perspective and to be described in different ways. Mm. It's a beautiful kind of capturing of this kind of non-binary way of seeing it, where you can you don't you don't have to condone something to in order to kind of acknowledge and recognise the forces that have created it. And 
seems to me quite an evolved position. <laughs> I know, she's, she's laughing. But, I, mean, I, put um, it like, I put a lot of thought into this. I, I feel like, and don't get me wrong, I 100% think those people are responsible for the decisions that they made. Mm. Like, particularly the crappy decisions that they made and the decisions that they make to harm others, you are 100% responsible for your decisions mm. to make harm others. I also think that most humans are only a series of bad decisions away from doing something really mm. awful. Mm. I think we can change for the better, but I also think we can change for the worse. Mm. And the times where I've made the worst decisions in my life, the things that I deeply regret and the things that I wish that I'd done really different have been times where I've been under incredible stress and incredible pressure and I've just made bad decisions. Mm. And I don't think that makes me intrinsically bad. I think it makes me intrinsically human. And the intrinsically human thing is to do is to go... I made really bad decisions there. I need to understand how I got to that point of making really bad decisions and I need to try my damnedest to not make bad decisions in that way again and try to make up for the dumb things that I've done in my life. There's two things that I, I, I want to ask you and I'm not sure that either of them are appropriate. Just ask them. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll ask them both at the same time and you can choose. Are some things that people do just evil? And secondly, and you don't have to answer this, have you, do you have any resolution, I don't know if it's the right word, about your experiences as a teenager and a sexual offender? I don't know how I feel about the concept of evil. I feel like there are some choices that people make clearly that are in a, in a category that are so abhorrent that we should call them evil. And we should name them for what they are. I mean, we always go to Hitler as the classic example, right? But Hitler was a product of so much of his world, including being on the front line of World War I. And if, I don't know how anyone got on the front line of World War I and was not profoundly damaged. Mm. Most people did not become genocidal maniacs. But also, the dude was doing a lot of meth. There's this whole lot of things that go in there, none of which excuse the fact that there were horrific decisions made so I struggle with the term evil but people certainly do things that are so abhorrent that we should call them evil because mm. that's a linguistic convention that mm. makes sense to carry the level of difference around those behaviours that we want to characterise them as to make them bad enough that people don't do them mm. have I reconciled anything about my own experiences is a really great question I have done a lot of work in my life around that and it is work like you got to do the work and you can I am of the opinion that you will never be most effective unless you've dealt with your own stuff and I feel like I perpetually am dealing with my own stuff some of that is about abuse some of that is about just living I feel like I did my bit and for me that doing my bit was going to court so I went to court lost twice but I did my bit and I had my say and I reconciled mm. that space and I don't feel responsible for them any more I in terms of the consequences in my own life and this you know every survivor goes through the why me and I'm going to return again to say it is so common yeah like it could be any of us mm. it was me because my parents are beautiful people who were completely ill-equipped to deal with sexual violence because it just was not within their framework so we need to get better at putting this on people's agenda so that that is a protection issue beautiful people lovely parents completely groomed like everybody else and mm -hmm. this perpetrators groom families and communities mm -hmm. they don't just groom individuals they groom families and communities and so it's like the the net of the stuff that i do now right you look at it and you go nobody could have escaped that that was a deliberate action mm -hmm. that played on all of the narratives that continue to make this possible and in that 
I don't feel responsible or blame anybody else but them for their decisions that they made, but I've reconciled that I can't I can't do anything about that. That's not my fight to have anymore. Mm. My fight to have is how do I make this a better space for other survivors, I think. Yeah. Wow, that's really... Does that answer the question? Yes, it certainly does in a beautifully articulated way. Top tips for students, tips for and students. I feel like you've already given us some excellent tips that could that students could find very useful in terms of writing. But do you have any other top tips for students? I totally have other top tips from students. This will be one of the only times in your life where you get to just be curious about knowledge and have access to resources where you can learn things. Do not underestimate the joy of a library database. When I went to child protection, I took with me folders and folders of ring binders. And in that kind of first six months, six to eight months, I still had access to library databases. So every time I came up against a problem, like I came up against a problem of physical violence against children in Sudanese communities. And we had this you know, influx of Sudanese refugees because of the civil conflict, but nobody really understood like culturally what was going on or even how do you identify a bruise on a kid with skin that dark and as a child in child protection we were grappling with how do we work with this community in ways that don't just become really arbitrary and you know people who have genuine fear of government for genuine genuine reasons how do we work with that and I had access to databases so I was able to go and do the research and I was able to like we had a female sex offender go and do the research on female sex offenders and look at how we deal with this mm -hmm. and when I lost access to those databases it was heartbreaking <laughs> because I could no longer I guess access readily access that evidence mm -hmm. to inform my practice you will when you go out there and you work you will lose access to these resources because they're expensive and your everyday organization can't afford them and not all of the knowledge is in books that you can buy and so I'm going to tell you two things one if you're an academic share your resources two be curious about things now and use those databases to learn about things and life is overwhelming and exhausting I promise you it will always be overwhelming and exhausting find a way to gather resources to you now because when you get out there it will be so much harder to find this is a moment of luxury and I know it doesn't feel like a moment of luxury but it's better to be curious about something than to be great at something and the curiosity will be fed by the resources that you will gather to you that's so great the curiosity about something is better than being great 100%. That's such a great thing to tell students, to remind students. I love that. And also go and buy ring binders. Go <laughs> go to Officeworks, buy yourself eight ring binders, the big ones, and start downloading stuff. I Although mean, we probably like, should encourage people to do digital. Totally do a digital. Get days. a digital download. Yeah. Back it up. Back up your digital download. I mean, I still have my ring binders. It was only when we moved over here at the end of last year that my ring binders got recycled. Oh dear. Data. Also, things get dated, but totally build your digital library. Yeah. And also, if you're like a if you're a graduate student and you're out there, and you have a problem that you want to know the best evidence-based practice to, I'm going to say, at great risk to myself here, <laughs> email me and I will talk to you about finding the research and sharing the research with you. So you've heard it here first, folks. <laughs> or better, email, email Adele. <laughs> or email, email your lecturer who you knew was passionate about the thing that you're struggling with, that lecturer who taught you about diversity in policing or that lecturer who talked to you about child sexual assault or that lecturer who talked to you about policies in developing nations and say I'm struggling with this issue what is the best evidence based practice and we will merrily share resources if we can. I think that's so true and what a, what a joy it would be to actually hear 
you know, if a student comes back to you and tells you sometime after how much they enjoyed your course and how much it stayed with them and that you that they thought of you when they needed a resource, that would Absolutely. be not a burden but a complete joy. That would be 100% joy. We would love that. Our academic little hearts would burst with joy <laughs> at that. Well, on with that image of an academic heart bursting, I think that's a good image. I hope it's a good image. <laughs> Thanks for being on your own podcast, Jodie. It has been completely as great as I expected it would be a conversation with you. You are, I've often said to you, you're, you're the master of asking questions because you have this sense of, I don't know, just knowing what the next step is in someone's story and kind of prompting it. And I knew I couldn't do what you do, but now it makes sense that you can interview people so well, I think, because you have a very evolved, I think, sense of the world, sense of humanity, sense of justice, and it's been a complete joy. And I'm sure the listeners will agree, a complete joy to finally turn the tables, turn the microphone around and put it in your face and have you tell us your story. So thank you very much. You're so welcome, Adele. It's been delightful. This podcast was hosted and produced by the excellent Associate Professor Jody Deeth. Editing by Kelsey Adams. That's me. Music by Pottington Bear. And this podcast was developed with support from the Queensland University of Technology. Thank you for listening.